Let's remain standing as Peter comes to read to us from the book of Romans. Reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It depends a little bit on which translation you might be using, but if you look closely at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, the text that Peter just shared with us this morning, you'll realize that it's just a single, very long, run-on sentence. The kind of sentence that your English teacher, depending on where and when you went to school, probably told you to never write, and a little bit like the sentence that I'm just finishing up, as a matter of fact. In the case of Romans 1, if you take out all the oppositions, relative clauses, prepositional phrases, and such, then that sentence would read like this, Paul, to those in Rome, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's really the scripture that we're dealing with this morning. Not that all of the other information is unimportant, that's certainly not the case, but it does put a spotlight on the reason for this letter. As we noted last Lord's Day, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, he considered that his primary and highest calling, was also called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So this is what he was sent to preach, the gospel of God. The late R.C. Sproul wrote, the whole book of Romans sets before us the gospel of God, and that's the approach that we'll be taking as we go through this book together. The Romans' road to salvation is not a set of stepping stones where we just skip from one chapter to the next. The gospel of God is not merely contained in Paul's letter to the Romans. The whole of Paul's letter to the Romans is the gospel of God. R.C. Sproul continued, it is God's gospel. That should be obvious. God owns it. God originated it. God designed it. And now God is simply using the Apostle Paul to communicate it to us. In other words, Romans is not at all the result of the theological insight of Paul, one of the most educated Jews in first century Palestine, but it is a message that comes from the mind of God. And as we'll see in future weeks, it comes with the power to change lives. So when Paul wrote, grace to you and peace, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not merely a greeting. 
in the way that one of us might begin a letter saying, Dear Sir, regardless of whether or not the Sir in question was particularly dear to us. Paul is not simply filling parchment here. Parchment was at a premium. The New Testament letters and books were often limited by the length of the scroll, so there was no room to say extraneous things. He's not just filling up paper with a standard apostolic greeting. Rather, this is the standard apostolic greeting because the gospel of God, if it is received, believed, and obeyed by God's sovereign grace is the only source of true and lasting peace in this world. Consider for just a moment Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. We're going to take a longer look at that eventually when we get there, but just quickly this morning. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, which is Paul's code for since we have been granted salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are other things in the world, and we'll look at those when we get to Romans chapter 5, that some people think will bring them peace, and sometimes they do at least temporarily. But all of those things that are part of this world that bring a temporary sense or measure of peace in our lives from day to day end when those lives end. And the only thing that can bring a peace that lasts not only through the course of our lives in this world but beyond our lives in this world is the grace of God that brings salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. So having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, look at verse 2 here. Through him, that is through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So grace and peace, Paul says at the beginning of this letter and many others. And what a beautiful description of the salvation that is held out to us in the gospel of God. This is not Paul saying to all of those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints, have a nice day, y'all. This is Paul declaring what he hopes will be the end result of the gospel that he proclaims. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And about this gospel, well, this is where all those appositions, relative clauses, prepositional phrases, and such come in. Reading again from chapter 1, Paul, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now we read that phrase sometimes here in Romans 1 and in other places in the New Testament where Paul or the other apostles are talking about the Holy Scriptures and it's worth us taking a moment to stop and ask which Holy Scriptures were they talking about? Remember, Paul's writing the Holy Scriptures of the New Testament here So when he talks about the gospel of God having been promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures, he's talking specifically about the scriptures of the Old Testament. I want to dwell on this for a minute. It is vitally 
important that we understand that. That when Paul refers to the Holy Scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament. When Peter refers to the Holy Scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament. When John refers to the Scriptures, the same thing. It's vitally important because today there are pastors and teachers, some of them very prominent, some of them quite close to home, who are suggesting that we don't need the Old Testament Scriptures. That the source of this conflict and division that we're experiencing in our denomination and in the Church of Jesus Christ generally comes from some people's adherence to and insistence upon the legitimacy of Old Testament scripture. There are those who suggest that Old Testament scripture is in fact irrelevant to today's culture. Andy Stanley, some of you may have seen him on TV, the pastor of North Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia, is quoted as saying, Jesus' new covenant, his covenant with the nations, his covenant with you, his covenant with us, can stand on its own two nail-scarred resurrection feet. It does not need propping up by the Jewish scriptures. That sounds pious. Sounds like, well, yeah, that's, that's probably true. The gospel of Jesus Christ can stand on its own two nail-scarred resurrection feet. thing is, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus constantly called his followers, look back to the Old Testament scriptures in which God proclaimed all of this beforehand. On the road to Emmaus, just after the resurrection from the dead, when Jesus walked along with a couple of his disciples, they didn't recognize him. He kept himself from being recognized, we believe. And as they began to sort of mourn and cry over the fact that the one they thought was going to be the Messiah of Israel was now dead and in a tomb, Jesus didn't, as I've said before, throw back his hood and say, hey, here I am. What did he do? He walked them through the Old Testament scriptures through the law and the prophets. And he showed them how the law and the prophets and the Psalms were scriptures, holy scripture that pointed to him, that the gospel that he came to inaugurate was not new. It was something that God had promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures of the Old Testament. On the Oprah Winfrey show way back in 2015, Rob Bell, once a prominent evangelical pastor, now a best-selling author, suggested regarding the affirmation of same-sex marriage that the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as its best defense. If you stop to think about it, the only letters that would be 2,000 years old at this time would be the New Testament. If that's what he feels about the New Testament letters, imagine what he must think of Old Testament scripture that was written 4,000 years ago. But one commentator on Romans has written, whereas the gospel may well be good news, it is by no means new news. It is as old as the Old Testament itself. When Paul talks about the gospel being promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures, this is exactly what he is describing. See, it's not only the whole book of Romans 
that is the gospel of God, that's true, but it's the whole Bible. Every word, every verse from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 is the gospel of God. And if we start cherry-picking that, and saying, well, there are whole chapters or whole books or even just a verse here and a verse there that should not be understood as the inspired, infallible, sufficient, and authoritative word of God, then you can pretty much throw the whole thing away, which is what a lot of people do. A lot of people have decided that Christianity is really just love. That's all it is. Just love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God. That's all. That's all there is to it. Amy Grant, the formerly prominent gospel singer, said that just a few weeks ago. Christianity is just about loving God and loving your neighbor. We really don't need the rest of it at all. But Paul says we do. Paul says this gospel was proclaimed by God's prophets in the Old Testament. That's why when he preached the gospel in the town of Berea, we're told that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. So Paul, the slave and apostle called by Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, is there at Berea doing exactly what he's been called to do. And we're told the people in that assembly at Berea were more noble than the people at Thessalonica because they would sit and listen attentively to Paul and then they would open up the holy scriptures of the Old Testament because that's all they had to see if what Paul was saying was true. They judged, they discerned the New Testament gospel on the basis of the Old Testament scriptures. And why did it work? What did they find there? They found the truth of what Paul was preaching to them in their day because the gospel which he proclaimed was the very same gospel which God had promised beforehand through the patriarchs and the prophets in the Psalms and in the ceremonies of the law. God began to announce this gospel, we are told, in the Heidelberg Catechism in Paradise, in the Garden of Eden, when probably just moments after Adam and Eve had sinned and fallen from the relationship that they had with God, God announced, one day, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, Satan. Yes, you'll, you'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your authority. From Genesis chapter 3, the very first promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ found anywhere in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 3. So, what happens if we relegate Genesis 3 or Genesis 1 through 11 or the whole book of Genesis as mythology? Never mind the fact that Jesus quotes it as if it's the authoritative and sufficient word of God, but what if we just throw out that first promise of the gospel in the holy scriptures of the Old Testament. As Sam Storms wrote, observe here the fundamental unity between the two testaments, and don't miss that. The fundamental unity between the two testaments. They stand together, 
they fall together. There is no sense in which we can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and just ignore the holy scriptures of the Old Testament. Storms goes on, the gospel of the New Testament is the fruit of which the Old Testament is the root. Which is an almost perfect analogy, especially given that we that Paul, as we'll see in chapter 11, will make largely the same argument when he persuades his largely Gentile audience to remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. An old adage says, the old is by the new explained, the new is in the old contained, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is by the new revealed. And old adage or not, this is true. See, we don't have the Holy Scriptures concerning God's Son by some accident of history. We have them because God inspired his prophets and patriarchs to write them down from the very beginning, and he gave them to his church in both testaments, and he gave them to us because we need them. We need the Old Testament if we're to understand and obey the new. Even the way that our text this morning identifies Christ as the one who was descended from David according to the flesh. Throughout the Old Testament, we have no idea what that means or why it matters. But it's important enough that it's included here And it's through the Old Testament we understand that God was making promises to his people from the very beginning. He made promises to Adam and Eve. He made promises to Abraham. He made promises to David. And so when Christ descends from David according to his human ancestry, according to the flesh, this is the fulfillment of a promise of God And every time God fulfills a promise throughout Holy Scripture, Old and New Testament, we are given increasing assurance of the fact that God will fulfill his promises to us too. What would it be if Jesus came along and he said, you know, just trust in me, follow me, and you will have eternal life? That's, I promise. That's how it is. And then we look back in history and we see, yeah, well, God promised a lot. It was mostly mythology. It was mostly not true. So we can't say God even promised it, never mind that he fulfilled it. What then? The Old Testament tells us what Paul means when he says that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power or in an act of power or by a powerful act according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And if we've been reading and comprehending the Old Testament, then that too does not come as a surprise to us because it's the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to his people that he has made from generation to generation. This is a promise that we can rely on. This is a rock on which we can stand. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the mediator and savior that had been promised from the very beginning. He is the mediator and savior that we need to this very day, one who is truly human and truly righteous. When he was descended from David, according to the flesh, he's truly human, yet more powerful 
than all creatures, as the Catechism says. That is, one who is also true God, which he was declared to be first by those prophecies in the Old Testament and fully and finally at an act of unimaginable power by his resurrection from the dead. The risen Christ, Jesus Christ, as he is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Not the Jesus of our fallen imaginations, not the Jesus of country and western music that says, if I could have a beer with Jesus, there's a few things I would like to ask him. Not the Jesus of popular music, the Jesus who has fully paid for the sin of his people with his precious blood. The Jesus who has set us free from the tyranny of the devil. The Jesus who watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our heads apart from the will of our Father in heaven. He's the one who works all things together for the salvation of his people. For there is salvation in no one else, the scriptures declare. Don't bother looking for it anywhere else. It cannot be found. It does not exist. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, apart from whom no one comes to the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life that are revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments. No wonder then that Paul was not ashamed to be called his slaves, and we shouldn't be ashamed to be so either. What sweet slavery. What a wonderful condition to belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think about that belonging in a little bit different way. But when the catechism says we belong to him, body and soul, in life and in death, it's saying you too are slaves of Jesus Christ, bound to him by the price that was paid for us and for our salvation. So what blessed submission to present ourselves then as living sacrifices to the one who gave himself for us and for our salvation. We'll see in Romans chapter 12, that's just your reasonable service. If Jesus Christ died on the cross and gave his body and his blood for you and for your salvation, being his slave, offering yourself as a living sacrifice to him is merely what's reasonable. What less could anyone do given all that he did for us? Of him, Paul wrote, through whom we have received grace an apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. We're going to have to look at that concept of the obedience of faith in weeks to come. But this brings us back full circle to verse 1 where he had written, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle. Now he says, through him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. And we find that he had received them for a reason. He had received them to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, that refers to those in Rome. But don't miss the modifiers. 
This letter is not addressed to all those in Rome, period. It's addressed to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And that may seem like a needless distinction, but it's not, and it's going to become particularly important later on. Paul's not just writing to everybody willy-nilly. He's writing to those who have been loved by God and called as saints. And in writing to those, Paul makes clear this letter was and is for the people of God. This is a letter to the church, every word of it. It's not what the old gospel tract, Romans Road to Salvation, was where we take that to people who don't know Christ yet and we use it as a method of evangelism and then once they've come to Christ, hallelujah, everything is dandy. The whole book is written to the church of Jesus Christ, to the saints and those who are loved by God. Because those to whom the gospel comes effectively, effectually by the grace and spirit of God are those who are loved and called to be saints. Donald Gray Barnhouse notes there is a sense, of course, in which God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only begotten son. But the very same apostle who wrote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, also wrote, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are his people in Christ Jesus. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So in that last clause, John says there are those who hope in Christ in this way, and they purify themselves in the obedience of faith. There are others who do not. So while we can speak of God loving the world and that he sent his only begotten son, he sent that son specifically so that those who believe, those who trust in him would be saved and having been saved would recognize that they were set apart as holy to God. We are not merely saved from, we are saved to. Jesus didn't come to just deliver us from our sin so that at the end of life when we die, we can go to heaven. He came to deliver us from our sin so that in the meantime, as we walk with him in holiness and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be further sanctified until that day when he receives us to himself in glory. There is a sense in which it is the Son himself who is the special object of God's love, and it's in Christ that we receive that. Again, as R.C. Sproul wrote, in God's economy of grace, his love does not stop with his only begotten son, but pours out to those who are within his family, to those who are the adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus. So, to those who are saints, by God's saving grace and the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. That includes us. It includes you. It includes me. It includes everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
In that sense, Paul's letter is to the saints at Rome. It's also to the saints at High River. It's to the saints in Canada and the saints in China and the saints in Russia and the saints in Ukraine. It is to all those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all of them, the book of Romans and the very gospel of God comes for the same end. And it comes to us in this way too. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, it's having been justified by faith that we have peace with God. And it's through that that we have been brought into this grace in which we now stand. Now going forward in the book of Romans, I don't want to try to sugarcoat anything. It's not going to feel like everything is grace and peace. Even as we go deeper into chapter 1, it's not going to feel that way. There are hard words in the book of Romans and in all of Scripture. There are words that some people are going to find offensive. As the Apostle Paul said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The message of the cross is foolish nonsense to those who don't know Christ. But thanks be to God whether or not that word seemed offensive to us when we first heard it, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul will say something very similar just a little bit later in Romans chapter 1. That's why we're studying it. That's why I'm preaching it. For this is the word of faith that we proclaim, all of it. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, this Jesus that we've been talking about today, the Jesus who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, that Jesus, if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then called to belong to Jesus Christ you too will be included among those who receive grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us grace to hear what your spirit is saying to your church today through these ancient words in the book of Romans. Call us to yourself effectually through the work of your Holy Spirit in the gospel. Save us by your grace. Work in us, Father, all that is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. That we may experience true grace and true peace from you and from Jesus Christ our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.